Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks are flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Brianna Cavanaugh. Brianna is a financial bliss mentor and coach and accountant. She works at the intersection of money, pleasure, self-love, and accounting. (laughs) She specializes in working with women, feminists, LGBTQ+, trans communities, and folks of color. She designs and teaches workshops and trainings on money mindset and financial self-love and pleasure, in addition to running a successful accounting business. Welcome to the show, Brianna. Hi, thank you, Sumati. It's great to talk to you tonight. So great to have you. And you're, you know, kind of an unusual guest for the show because people don't usually think of money as connected to relationships and um, alternative cells of relationships and communication and all that kind of stuff. But I love how you've brought it all together. So how did you kind of end up being someone who is considers themselves a financial bliss mentor and coach how did how did that come about <laughs> that's a very good question um the you know what it's it is a strange thing to kind of put all of those things together i um years ago so i used to work in technology like before i did you know stuff about money and sex and all this i worked in technology and on the side i i was a sex educator um, and I did all kinds of things. I, I actually wrote the first um, HIV curriculum for the Red Cross that they'd ever done for youth in, in like, 1997. Um, and I, like, cool. very early just found a passion for sex education. Uh, yeah, and I had a, I have a really great, you know, time. And I came out as um, first as bisexual and then as queer in, like, the, you know, the mid-'90s. And... Um, and so I was already on that path when I lost my job in tech and I had to figure out what I was going to do to make money, basically. Um, and because I hadn't, um, I actually hadn't finished my degree in the, you know, in the tech bus of like the early, the early 2000s, I had a really hard time finding a job. Um, and so I, I, I landed myself on welfare, basically. I, um, after I, my last tech job, I, spent down um, my savings and my unemployment and my retirement and found myself with as a single parent of a small child on welfare, um, which was 
completely unexpected, right? Like I, I grew up in a, in a middle class or upper middle class um, family and, you know, who are all, um, my parents are both educated. They're both, um, my mom's passed now, but they're, my mom was a teacher. My dad still is a college educator. And so I was surprised because I, I didn't really think of myself as someone who struggled with money of any, of any sort. Um, but because it was me and because I had already done some activism, like around sex and sex education, I, I went looking at, like, why this happened and what to do about it. Um, first, by getting, trying to get myself some, some resources about how to get off of welfare. And I found an organization that was engaging with the welfare system and trying to educate parents and make legislative change. And so I worked with them, and, and, and that had me take a deep dive into policy and the California state budget. Um, and so I, I, I started doing deep dives into the California state budget, which is also, again, like it's another kind of strange place to find myself as someone who was like working in tech and planned to be a tech person. Um, and I'm like doing all this analysis of the California state uh, budget because I had done some work on, on databases and I, I knew how to look at data. And so mm. it's like this really roundabout way where suddenly I'm, I'm looking at the budget and then, and then because I wrote this whole analysis, they asked me to speak about it. So I find myself at the first ever U.S. social forum in like 2007 speaking about welfare reform and California state budget and the federal budget and how like all these budgeting things are messed up and we're putting, you know, we're spending more money on like finding welfare fraud than there is welfare fraud. I was like, that's bananas, right? Like, hmm. um, and so with my, my own personal journey, of deeper and deeper dives into money and analysis and understanding what was going on with, or what goes on with, with money. And so as I'm doing this, um, of course, then I have a job as a policy analyst and things are starting to, you know, shift a little bit. Um, I, I basically got asked like simultaneously to um, someone offered to, uh, they asked to hire me to like consult, to run their, to run and organize their sex party. And I got another job offer to like do um, bookkeeping part time. And I was like, I don't even know how to do bookkeeping. Like, I don't know. I don't even know why you're trying to hire me to do this. Um, and it was just this sort of our moment. And out of that, I built um, a bookkeeping practice and I got trained and I did all this stuff to like build this up. And then on the other hand, um, you know, I've been doing stuff around sex and sex education basically my whole life. And so those mm. things just sort of naturally started to weave together with like, mm -hmm. oh, money is really hard and everything feels really hard. And my clients are like, they get really crunchy about money and, and, um, and I started applying my skills around communication around sex to my communication around money. Oh. Um, and that's, that's totally basically how it, yeah, right? That's, you know, that's how it started. And once those things came together, I, I, this big light bulb went off and I was like, oh, that's what money needs. Money needs more pleasure. Mm. And it, and the rest, as they say, was history. Um, you know, that, that's how I got started was I, I had to figure it out for myself. And I just naturally, being who I am, applied my, my 
experience around around sex and communication and education and curiosity to work around money. And so then I started bringing all these tools. And so I'm, I'm sitting in my clients' businesses asking them questions about how things are going and, and being, you know, starting to turn the conversation into a deeper conversation about how money is taboo and sex is taboo and, um, and just asking people if they were willing to be a little more transparent and a little more open about their conversations about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Money is such a weird thing. Like, you know, you go into the bank and it's so quiet and then you ask them how much money is you're in, in your account and they write it on a piece of paper. It's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> and they like slip it to you under the table. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, it's a secret. Um, I, I often, when I first start to talk to teenagers about it, I, I talk to them about how when you go out to dinner, like if you notice a group of adults who go out to dinner with their friends, like nobody talks about money. And when the checks come, sometimes people are like, oh, I'll pay for it, you'll pay for it, or we'll split it. But it's always a sort of last-minute decision. And then when people get their check and they sign it, they often they like turn it over so no one else can see it, right? The whole thing mm-hmm. is a secret that no one talks about. And it's weird, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It is it's really weird. weird. I think there's a lot of shame, like there's a lot of um, identity attached to how much money you have or don't have. So there's a lot of shame around it. Um, like That's we right. think that we should have more money than we do, or when we have a lot of money, we have to protect it because someone might want to take it or take advantage of us. So yeah, there's a lot of shame and weirdness around it. And similar to sex, where you know it's not like we're talking about sex and, as they say, quote mixed company all the time. You know it's also a topic that's That's not just I mean in our social circles yes but in the mainstream world (laughs) it's not something that people just bring up over dinner (laughs) that's right and and the the thing that I've been realizing about money so there's two things one of them is um, that money touches everything right and then the other thing is and we can talk about both of these if you want but the other thing is that there's there in in our culture in our like mainstream culture, there is no right way to have money. There is shade thrown at everyone at every level of money. Like no matter how much of it you have or how much you don't have, the the cultural story is looking at you and being like, that's wrong, right? If you're, mm, if you're wealthy, yeah. you're ultra wealthy, of, of course you got your money from doing something corrupt. Like there's no cultural story about ethical wealth. Um, and like, if you're, you know, if you're poor, like clearly there's something wrong with you. And if you're middle class, why aren't you wealthy? And if you're, you know, it's like every place on the financial spectrum, like somebody's getting crap for it. And that tells mm. me that our cultural, that money in our culture is out of alignment. Like we are not in right relationship with money as a culture. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that you use the word um, profitable when you, you talk about that you have a profitable business. And so I'm wondering if you're intentionally avoiding using the word successful. Um, I, that's an interesting question. I feel like I don't think that I did that on purpose, but I do have a very specific sort of definitions for both of those. Like, you know, mm-hmm. success is often, again, like there's a cultural story that success is you have a million-dollar business or a billion-dollar business or a $10 million. Like there's a cultural story around what success looks like in business. Um, mm-hmm. And 
and there isn't as much story around profitable. Like people are always wanting their business to be profitable and most of them have no idea what it means. And right. I, I think that personally I'm more comfortable working in the space where they're like where where we're not like super hemmed in by cultural stories because the minute that happens, the minute that we're that we're looking all these cultural stories in the face, which is important, but that hems us in. Right. So if if I'm trying to get people to talk about success then we have to define and redefine and redefine success because people, once they have a cultural story, often they cannot hear you when you're, when you're trying to redefine it or get them to think about it in a different way. So it, it, it's a, it's a, that's a lot of shifting mindset to even be able to have a conversation. So I did use the word profitable on purpose for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Okay, well, before we go on more, I want to talk more about the intersection of money and pleasure. Um, but just to continue on with your personal story, so do you, what labels do you use? So you said you're queer. Do you consider yourself polyamorous or non-monogamous? Um, and how does, that, how does that show up in your personal life as, as much as you're willing to share about that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. So I think of myself as, um, sometimes I think open relationship or non-monogamous. Um, my my sweetheart, who's my my nesting partner, um, uh, he considers himself polyamorous. <laughs> like we we have different definitions, but we have um, mm-hmm. you know, we've done a lot of work to be on the same page about our about our agreements. Um, mm-hmm. We what do I want to say about that? So we live together and we're very happy. And um, I have people that I own with I you know have kind of lovers that I see when I'm in in different places um and we um love we go on this like super sexy vacation every year um that I'm happy to talk about and we also we go to sex parties like we definitely play with other people um Mm -hmm. but we are pretty like the thing that has come up in this relationship more than any other is like, we're just really super kind of low drama. Like we created our agreement and we're really good at, at kind of sticking with them and checking in with each other and uh, prioritizing our partnership um, in a Mm -hmm. way that feels so incredibly like nurturing and loving and supportive to me that I feel like a really super deep level of, of trust, which both like, trust him and also trust myself that when I'm out in the world, whatever I'm doing, whether I'm like flirting or, or making out or having sex with other people or, you know, whatever I'm doing, I feel very confident that um, we can work out whatever, whatever happens. And that's really Mm -hmm. important to me. Cool. So you said that your partner considers himself polyamorous. He uses that, that label for himself. So that makes me think of I'm not Polly, but my boyfriend is. <laughs> my friend, my friend made a movie with with yeah. that title. I'm not Polly, but my boyfriends are. <laughs> yeah, Andy Hartman. So that's yeah, yeah. You I know, know Andy, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was on the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. that's great. He's okay. Well, hard. thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, everybody does it in their own unique way, you know, and it's great that we have the freedom to define how we want our relationship to be. I always say once you step outside the dominant paradigm of monogamy, the sky's the limit. We get to invent the life that we want. 
yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I started having open relationships when I was like 19. Um, I had a, a partner who introduced me to this idea. Like I, I had previously been in a, you know, just like had a monogamous boyfriend, like, you know, what I thought was supposed to happen. And um, I met someone um, and I, you know, we fell in love and he was like, oh, well, you know, there's this whole idea of like polyamory and open relationships. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That makes me nervous. That's interesting. That's weird. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Ah. <laughs> um, kind of all over about it. And then one night we were traveling and I had connected with someone who I thought was really great. He was like flirting with me. Um, and, and he was like, Oh, you should go, you should go on a date. You should go hang out with him. And I was like, ah, wouldn't that be weird? Ah, you know? Um, and eventually I, I did. And then I came back to my, my sweetheart, um, uh, and, and he was totally good with it. And suddenly I was like, oh, oh, wait, maybe this is a thing. Um, and I had to think quite a lot about it. Um, and I eventually, like, very quickly learned that other people aren't so into it. And, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I learned to talk about mostly in my, you know, kind of in my close circles. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also something that it's like, you know, one of my questions has been like, how out do I be about who I am and who I have sex with? On the one hand, like, nobody's business who I'm having sex with. Like, it just isn't, right? And then on the other hand, this has definitely been a point of liberation for me to feel um, clear about, you know, my body and my sexuality um, and my power really belonging to me and not having to kind of give those up or give them away in relationship. And so that's been a really critical, a really critical piece for me. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's not something that I, I want to hide, but like also, you know, it's not something I talk about with my, with my dad because um, he's super not into it. Uh, as far as I can mm-hmm. tell, you know, like mm-hmm. um, now that we haven't talked about it in years, but um you know, I, I made a decision not to bring home when I was in a triad. I made a decision not to bring home my partners because it was just too, it was too controversial for my for my family. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that you know definitely put distance between me and them about you know if if I can't really be who I am, how much can I really share with people I can't really be a hundred percent of myself with? Right. Yeah, that's so true about families. You know, it's kind of a weird thing, like. That there's on the one hand they're supposed to love us unconditionally, but then we we can't always be our full selves around our families. A weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. Yeah, well, I so know. thank you for sharing so much of your story with us. I really appreciate that. Um, You're welcome. And so, tell us about what what it looks like at the intersection of money and pleasure and self love and accounting. <laughs> It's very sexy in here. <laughs> um, what I find is I look for the places that I look, look for the places of turn on. I look for the places um, that are interesting and curious to me, and I I hang out there and I explore them. So this whole thing about sex and money and accounting. You know, I, I talked a little bit about how it came together sort of naturally. It was like, oh, I was already doing work around sex, and, you know, these things came together. And, and what I find is that, you know, 
as long as I continue to hold all of it, right, and don't kind of let myself get too far down the, like, head trip of accounting or too far over what can be a little bit um, ungrounding with, you know, sex, it, it actually works quite well. Um, I feel like there's, a, there's definitely a balance of holding all of, all of the pieces. And I feel like that's really the, the work of being a powerful person is about holding all the pieces of, you know, of yourself, whatever they look like. And being able to tolerate the internal inconsistencies and how things can be difficult because you like this and that, but they don't go together. You know, like my son with his strawberry ice cream and his, uh, his like mint chocolate ice cream, like mint and strawberry, ah, weird. But like, you know, if you hold those things separately, they taste great. (laughs) (laughs) And so how how does the the different flavors of ice cream relate to it? I, I missed that. Oh, just that, you know, if you put the strawberry and the mint and the gummy bears all together, I think it's gross. But, like, you know, if you hold them separately in their own little containers but put them nearby, they seem fine. <laughs> and that's my and son's so that, preference for, like, for years. That was his favorite ice cream. I'm sorry, I probably left that out. Is like, he would, like, mint chocolate chip and strawberry and gummy bears. And, and I just thought the whole thing was kind of gross. Uh-huh, and that's an analogy for how you can put money and pleasure kind of side by side and enjoy each one. Yeah, that everything doesn't have to squish all into each other. Like you can find the places in your in your places in, in accounting or in money or whatever that are pleasurable and use that to kind of expand um expand your space and um and you don't have to hold it all you don't squish it together and you don't have to hold it hold it all rigidly. Right, you can just mm-hmm. um, find different ways to be with all, all the different pieces of yourself and all the different pieces of money and sex and accounting and power and all of that. Got it. Okay. Um, and I noticed that you kind of specialize in working with marginalized people. Um, what have you found are some unique issues that come up with with money around marginalized people? Um, so early on in my practice, I worked with whoever came to me and frequently, you know, it was, you know, straight white men looking for, uh, you know, a bookkeeper. And when I would talk to them about, uh, money and give them advice, which they paid me for, right. That's part of my job is to give them advice about, you know, how to make sure they're paid, you know, they're, they're in, um, what is it called, in compliance with their payroll law, you know, payroll laws and payroll taxes and all of that. And I found that when I would give them advice and offer them ideas that by and large, they just didn't take them. Um, Mm. They thought they knew how it was. And so they were going to do it their way. And there wasn't a lot of openness about conversation about how to make sure that, um, that things were being done in a clear, ethical mutually supportive relationship. And what mm-hmm. I found was as soon as I started working with people who were less mainstream, the conversation is open. The conversation about money and what to do and how to do it and how to be ethical and how to find our own way and our own path, all of those things open up because as soon as you have to look outside the mainstream, there's an opening, right, to talk about something different. 
And so I could use mm. that opening to actually bring my skills and my education to people who really want to change. And, mm. and that's what I really want, right? I really want to mm-hmm. create change and, and have people have more love in their lives and have them have more love in their relationship with money and their, you know, and their sexual relationships and their romance and their children and their, you know, just I want there to be more love in the world. And so this is a, you know, like I want, so I want to do that in a place where I can be effective. And, and I find that um, where, where there is willingness, where there's an opening in the conversation, we can actually have an exploration. And I find that in these different marginalized communities that we, we all have ways that we've had to find coping skills and strategy and information and classes and workshops and on and on about how to find our power and our space and our freedom and choice and joy even though we are not the people portrayed in, in, in mainstream relationships or films or, you know, history books, right? We have to find our own way. And so I have become adept at working with people who also are looking to find their own way. And so what's happened is the prerequisite is that people are looking to find their, their way, not, not even necessarily my way. I have ideas about things to teach them, but the thing that I teach best is how to find your own way with sex, Mm -hmm. money, and power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I read on your website that one of the big things that you got when you stepped outside the mainstream um, was busting the myth that you had to overwork and be under-resourced. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Oh, yes. So the, this, again, speaks to cultural stories. And this one is about um, partially, it, you know, it definitely shows up around business. It shows up around being a mom. It shows up around um, poverty and changing your, your class. Um, you know, like if you want to go from being poor to being, you know, even working class, the, the idea is that you have to work super hard, right? And that, the, that this is a meritocracy, that people who work really hard get ahead. And um, and so there's a few things about that. One of them is it's it's straight up not true, right? We have less class mobility um, now than we have ever had in the history of the United States, um, which is uh, we have diminishing class mobility, and that's a problem. Um, there's that means there's something wrong in the money system, and and I think that's because we're we're out of alignment with our relationship with money. And so things are getting more and more stuck. And eventually, you know, there'll be some kind of revolution. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is this contributes to the myth of rugged individualism, the idea that we can and should do it all, of, all ourselves, and that's why we have to work so hard. And mm-hmm. that is also not true. And that's not true because our limbic systems, we're actually created to um, – to be with other people, that, and that closes our limbic system loop. Um, there's a great book about this, actually. It's called A General Theory of Love. It's a fantastic book, and it talks about our, the biology of love and relationships, and it's fantastic. And one of the big things I got out of that was this idea that, like, it's not that we should or shouldn't be, um, you know, do it all ourselves, be rugged individualists. It's that we, we can't. We are physically not designed to do that. And so in light of that, we have to figure out who we are and how we want to be with 
money, sex, relationship, community, et cetera, but, you know, in, in this case, focusing on money. So if we're, we're not designed to do it all, and if that myth will actually take us out, right, that myth will destroy our limbic system and our nervous system, what the hell are we supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Right. So what's the answer? <laughs> so I believe in community and connection and that mm-hmm. being together and working together um, is, is one of the keys to making this shift, to go mm-hmm. from overworked, underpaid to a different, a different way of being in the world. We have to do it together. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we can't do it by ourselves. Just, just like while we can have pleasure by ourselves, it's in many ways, you know, much easier. Um, and often we'll, we find more satisfactory to be, you know, have pleasure that we share with other people, you know, the, that pleasure of sharing joy um, with other people. I, you know, let, let me put it to you this way. So, you know, the, we get brain, good brain chemicals when we do something nice for other people. We mm-hmm. get even more brain chemicals, good, a good brain, you know, dopamine and all of that stuff when we watch someone do something nice for someone else. We are mm-hmm. designed to be kind to each other and to be together and help each other. We are literally designed. Mm-hmm. That is our biology. Mm-hmm. Cool. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Brianna Kavanaugh, a financial bliss mentor, coach, and accountant. And we're talking about the intersection of money and pleasure. And um, Brianna was just talking about community and connection and how important that is with regard to money even. And I was just talking about that recently. I was doing a workshop about transforming jealousy into compersion and love. And mm. I was giving people, I gave people four practices that they could take away with them and do in their life to begin to move that energy of jealousy into love and acceptance. And the underlying teaching of all of it was don't do this alone. <laughs> all of these practices <laughs> are intended to be done in community. Like, you know, once mm-hmm. if you're, if you're practicing an alternative relationship style, Relationships are hard enough, you know, monogamous relationships are hard enough, but when you, when you add non-monogamy, you really need community who can support you because the greater culture doesn't support that way of relating. So I was emphasizing that we really need this, that open relationship really needs to be done in community where it's normalized, where you can share your struggles with other people without them blaming the structure of the relationship, you know, like, oh, see, that's what happens because you're polyamorous right. instead of looking at what the issue is underneath it. So I think I'm a big supporter of that, that, that we are wired for tribe, um, that that's in ourselves. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how this looks to be in community and connection around our money? Does that mean like doing our bookkeeping with lots of friends or <laughs> how does that look? So... Uh, First, first, I want to say that humans, um, we, we evolved to be both pack animals and herd animals. Um, and so the, the, the idea of tribe just underscores this whole idea. Like, again, it's literally our biology. 
and this whole idea of kind of nuclear families, you know, is, is less than a century old, right? But the idea that you live, you know, by yourself or just with your partner or whatever, um, and it, it seems to be dramatically contributing to things like depression and, um, yeah, it's, it's no good. Um, so what to do about it? That's, that's a great question. So one of the things that I do about it is um, I both give workshops and go to workshops, like literally get in, in community as much as I can and have these conversations in community. Um, I've mm-hmm. been visioning for a long time having a space to have more people in community. And I, you know, we recently bought a house where we can have more people in community and our, in our space and our spot. And, um, and that's really exciting. So, so any way that you can get into community to begin to have these conversations. Um, mm-hmm. So at first it's going to be challenging, right? Like the first time you, you talk about anything where you talk about sex, you talk about money, you talk about, you know, it doesn't matter. It's going to be challenging. Um, and so you're going to have to sit with some amount of uncomfortability because you're going against cultural norms. So anytime you go against mm-hmm. cultural norms, it's going to, it's going to be awkward. And um, mm-hmm. I just, I say, embrace the awkward. It's great. So mm-hmm. awkward means that you're taking baby steps towards the thing that you want, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. really the beginning is, you know, when you go out to friends, you just say, say to them, hey, we're going to go out to dinner. Let's talk about, you know, how we're going to pay for this. And you can talk about it. You know, does somebody want to pay? Are you going to split it? Does somebody have cash and your credit cards? Like, um, you know, how much do you feel like you can afford what does that look like so that you can all be on the same page? And that's a like fairly low key way to have a small risk around money that can benefit your community right away. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely recommend being gentle and kind about it because people often haven't had these conversations, but you know, just starting to have the conversation and every time you go out is a way to start normalizing conversations about money. So the, mm-hmm. my, my big recommendation is to start having the conversations, whether you have a, you know, a, fi- a financial bliss mentor like me or not, right? Like you can do this. You can have conversations with the people who are close to you, with people you might, you know, go out with, just um, people you hang out with in the world. It's fine. It's fine to talk about money. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the thing that really goes on for us is these places where we have these cultural stories are the places to look for liberation. So any place that you see that there are cultural, you know, stereotypes or cultural norms, um, and, and you, can find, you can find those cultural norms by noticing places where you, you think, oh, nobody does that, or oh, any reasonable person would know, blah, 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 that's often a cultural mm-hmm. norm, right? Mm. Um, and those are the places that you want to look for liberation. So as soon as you're mm-hmm. like, oh, any reasonable person would never talk about money. That's so rude. Mm-hmm. You turn around and you're like, ah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to run right towards that um, and look at it. Um, and uh, I warn you that this is, you know, it produces some awkwardness and it produces some uncomfortability. And it, and it will, I guarantee, produce a lot of fodder for growth. Um, but if we're going to mm-hmm. change our relationship with money and we're going to change our relationship with community and love and sex, we have to be willing to have these really honest, really open, transparent, authentic conversations and screw it up and then clean it up, right? Open mm-hmm. it up, blow it up, 
clean it up. <laughs> That's a great formula. Yeah, and yep. all growth happens outside our comfort zone, doesn't it? Yes. I want to say something about comfort zones. So mm-hmm. widely maligned comfort zone. So comfort zones are actually something called um, a homeostatic range. So as biological like creatures, homeostatic range or what people call your comfort zone are super normal. That is normal. Mm-hmm. That is like every day, everybody has a homeostatic range, has a normal. And growth does happen on the edge of that place. And I just want to say to people who are like freaking out or worried about this or curious, but, you know, don't feel like they can do anything about it, that your homeostatic range is designed for one thing. It's designed to mm-hmm. keep you alive. It, it has mm-hmm. a, a specific purpose. So if you're cool with your life, just how it is, and that's fine, that literally no judgment from me, staying in your homeostatic range is cool. And when you go outside mm-hmm. of your, your homeostatic range, your biology will want to push you back. And that's where mm-hmm. you get all the, the, the churn and the turmoil and the turnover is because your biology wants you to be back in the place where your biology, your body, your animal self mm-hmm. knows that you're safe. And so it's a really good reminder that when you push into some of these places and you get kind of backlash, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because something is working. And so mm-hmm. you want to look at, okay, so this thing is working. That's great. And then you can calm your nervous system and be like, okay, this is my homeostatic range. This is my comfort zone. And I am willing to be uncomfortable and step outside of my range. Right, mm-hmm. but the, but if you don't look at it and you pretend that there's something wrong about that, you end up with a whole host of issues. Homeostatic mm-hmm. range, comfort zone, super normal, totally fine, right? And just remember mm-hmm. that when you step outside and it gets uncomfortable, and remind yourself, ah, it's uncomfortable because I'm I'm intending growth, and so at any time right. you kind of back off of that if it gets to be too much, because there you know there's like yeah. a green, yellow, red zone. And the green zone is like, everything's good. And the red zone is like, oh my God, she's blowing up and it's terrible and we're all going to die. And really you want to be like, if you're doing gross, you want to be in that kind of yellow zone of like, oh, this is a little bit edgy, but it's not so edgy that like everything is blowing up. Yeah. And that kind of explains the two steps, two steps forward, one step back phenomenon where we, where growth isn't always linear because it's maybe we push ourselves into the red zone a little bit too much and we, we want to go back to green for a while before we can venture out into the yellow again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need integration. You know, we can't live our lives 100% in the yellow because it will freak out our nervous system, right? Right. And, and what, you know, what does happen is once we spend enough time in the yellow zone, that zone will start to become more green, and that's great, you know. Um, mm. and, and it just takes, you know, it just takes time. But in order to get right. there, I really recommend being easy on yourself and finding the ways, especially in between, that feel really good so that your, your, animal, your animal self and your, you know, your nervous system can really feel nurtured because it's that strong underlying sense of safety and nurturing that's going to allow you to venture back out into the yellow zone again. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Successfully. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you for that teaching. That was beautiful. Um, so I want to ask you about this 
the subject of sex magic. Do you feel like there's any <laughs> credence to that when people basically dedicate their sexual pleasure to some goal or some, um, uh, you know, desire they have to manifest something in their life? Yes, a hundred percent. I I have definitely been a practitioner of sex magic for sure. Um, Mm-hmm. I have a lot to say about magic. I've, I've been a, a priestess for 20 years. Um, mm. So in addition to being this like weirdo combination of like, you know, sex educator and accounting person, I also am a priestess and a, and a sex magician. Um, and the, you know, when you first start to look at, at sex and sex magic, um, there's a, or magic in general, people will be like, oh, you know, magic is, magic is real. Um, and then eventually you get into it, you're like, oh, ma- magic works. And magic, I, mean, I don't know that we have enough time to go into what, what it really is, but um, Dion Fortune has a great thing. Magic uh, is the art of changing consciousness at will. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I believe that we, we, can, we can change our lives. And sex magic is one, definitely can be one piece of, piece of that if you're if you're up for it and up for it is, you know, you have to have a, like a, a, a magical foundation of some sort because sex magic mm-hmm. is, runs a lot of energy and um, mm-hmm. you can, some people think you could really injure yourself with sex magic. What happens is you put out a lot, a lot, a lot of energy. And so when you put out a lot of energy, it creates a lot of change in the world and, and there are ways that, that people aren't ready you know, sometimes change mm-hmm. will happen way, way, way faster than you want it to if you, you know, mm-hmm. pour energy into into a particular issue. Um, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel like I've used sex magic quite quite effectively. Um, and in fact, I, you know, my experience is it's one of the things that actually brought, you know, brought my like extraordinary sweetheart, my nesting partner, my love. Um, into my life was the the work that I did, um, including sex magic, um, to mm. to manifest that because that's one of the things that I wanted in my life for a long time, um, and mm-hmm. had you know lots of lovers and friends and fun and parties and but really what I wanted was a was a, a partner and um, mm-hmm. part of part of that process um, was that and I and I also use it um, you know ha- have used it on and off for business building and for clarity and for releasing um i'm not sure i'm not sure exactly what you want to know about it but yeah i I definitely think sex magic is a it's a real thing and it definitely creates change in the world for sure no that's great keep going um about how you use it for business (laughs) i think that's a great topic for this uh this interview (laughs) so so the thing is magic has a you know a foundation and a structure right and it needs it needs things in order to work. And one of the things that it needs is a container. And so just like you would create a container around a workshop or, you know, actually setting up a home as a form of a container, your magic needs a container. You know, it needs, it needs boundaries and edges and, and, and sacred space. Um, and one of the other, the big thing, um, actually, that is the, the most, the thing that people most run into problems with is actually, um, called alignment and and that word I feel like is used in a bunch of different ways but like if 
if you have things that are in the way of what you want, um, that will get in the way of your results. Um, but the more kind of aligned you are, the easier your results come. And that whole thing is the, the subject of very many books and <laughs> books and movies and research and classes. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and so when people, they do something like sex magic, they do something like magic and then they're like, Oh, it didn't really work. Or this weird thing happened. Um, there's this whole piece around, around alignment and understanding who you are and what's going on inside of you um, that worked or didn't work. But, and there's, and, and I can't talk about that without also talking about systems of oppression um, because there is a way that when we say, you know, you can use magic to do anything that it, um, it can reinforce this idea of rugged individualism of, you know, a meritocracy of all, all of that kind of stuff. When, when in fact those things are not objectively true. Um, mm-hmm. And, and especially when we're talking about, you know, um, the, you know, black indigenous folks of color, LGBTQ, et cetera, community, you know, um, disabled folks, like there's a way that, that many people are at quite a disadvantage and so mm-hmm. um, I just want to make sure to not imply that just because you um, do magic, you can change any, you know, everything. Um, it's, it's more complicated than that. And I, and I don't want to, I don't want to enforce this idea of, of like rugged individualism and, and that class movement is, uh, is kind of easily done. I, I do think that mm-hmm. there is both an individual component and a com- community component, and sex magic is right. done in community, and that's a, a whole other other thing. Um, mm-hmm. But often, when people get into this whole rugged individualism, the tendency is to leave leave community and all all of the things that go with it behind. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people who are much better at talking about this than I am, but I I just want to notice mm-hmm. that. Um, that if we if we only ever create change one person at a time, we're not actually creating systemic change, um, and in mm-hmm. fact, we can be actually doing things that will pr- oppress other people. So, I, I just want to notice that there's like it's it's just a bigger conversation than than just you know what happens if I do sex magic. Um, but I yeah, definitely, I can hear that. You're curious about. No, I was just going to say that um, it it can reinforce that whole idea. The, um, myth that you know people who may be poor or come from a, a place where they live where they really don't have much opportunity that if they just um, you know thought the right thoughts and did the right things that that they too could have a Mercedes or whatever you know it's, right yeah and, I can, and I can see how it can be things, misinterpreted yeah and there's some things that are really complicated about about oppression and one of them, one of the ones that I've been studying is about trauma and how trauma affects your, your brain and your biology. So trauma actually will, will basically cut and paste itself all over your brain. And so once you have some of these, especially more intense traumas, um, and, and I'm thinking like, you know, um, uh, sexual abuse and, you know, early childhood trauma, especially it, it actually gets all over your brain. And so it, it takes, so there are all these ways that your brain, your biology is trying to protect yourself. And so it won't let you, 
it won't let you have things. But so then we have whole communities that have these traumas and there's ways that the whole, the whole way that that trauma sets up um, is just, is harming them just by them existing. Right. And, mm-hmm. and then we have people who are kind of on the other end, end of that and they're, and they're perpetuating traumas and sometimes they don't even realize that they're doing it. And that, there's a whole conversation mm-hmm. about like white supremacy and, and how we're, you know, ha- how we're behaving that, you know, is harming other people and we don't even realize it. And, and it's, and it's, and it's complicated. So mm-hmm. I don't want to leave that out of a conversation around transformation that we can't, I feel like yeah. we can't talk about transformation without, without saying, look, you know, there, there is this whole system, you know, systems, of oppression on every different access that keep people from mm-hmm. even being able to access the conversation that we're able to have today. Yes, we are very privileged to be able to even talk about these things and to have the businesses that we have, and I'm really grateful for that. And I love how on your website you talk about the tax to the indigenous tribes whose land we are on. Can you just speak to that for a minute? Oh, yeah, the, the Shumi land tax. So the the land that we live in, um, you know, basically, unless you're, you know, native to this, um, you know, d- descendant of Native, you know, Native Americans or Native folks, um, which sometimes uh, here in the in the Bay can mean Native folks, it can mean um, Mexican people. Um, you're colonizers. You know, we're colonizers. We the land was stolen from those people. Um, mm-hmm. And however you you know you feel about that, and and a lot of people have feelings. Oh, it was so long ago, but it's still true, right? And those people have never mm-hmm. been restored, right? They they mm-hmm. their lands and their um, their lands and their their history and their you know they just haven't been restored, and their their places are still being you know desecrated and you know sold off and destroyed. Um, and so the you know in the East Bay. Um, where I was living to very recently, the Shumi people, um, is that right? Ohlone people and the tax is called the Shumi land tax. So they have a calculation on their website about being able to pay the tax. And I think it's like $60 a year. I think it varies by like, actually don't let me, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing. So, but you can go and check that out. And I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to give to um, the people whose land who have been stolen and they have not been restored. Mm. And I, I love that. think it's really, thank you. I think it's really important to, to honor the land that we live on and the people who, who are rightful owners of that land um, mm-hmm. and to be in, you know, figure out how, what, what's right relationship with that and how are we in service to Native people and helping them restore, um, restore their, their traditions and their families and their lands and their, you know, and their hearts. I feel like, you steal someone's land that they've lived on for generations, like ripping out their heart. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. That's a beautiful lesson. Okay. So my last question is, do you still have Tiara Tuesdays in your office? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, from time to time, still do Tiara Tuesdays. So for that whole thing though, I love this whole thing and how it came about. One of my friends, um, his name is Jesse Bloom, and he actually runs, oh, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong, Sacred Kitchen. Um, he is amazing work with food. And he challenged me one day, and he totally forgot about this, but he was, like, challenged me to wear 
this tiara that I had just bought every Tuesday. Like he's like, wear it every day for a year. And I was like, ah, that's not a real thing. Um, but I committed to wearing it every, you know, once a week um, for a year. And it was this um, extraordinary um, experience of committing to this, what ends up being a practice around being seen and basically doing something different. Every time I wore it, um, I would get some kind of reaction. Like I literally got people like running down the street, like coming out of stores, running down the street and saying things like they'd never met a real princess before. Um, (laughs) Or stopping me and asking me if it's my birthday or wanting to take a picture with me um, or like asking me if I just won some kind of beauty contest, which by the way, I think that's one of my favorites. Um, And it really did a lot to change my relationship with being seen, which, you know, as a business uh-huh. owner is a big deal because you're, you know, you have to figure out how to market and, you know, kind of sell what it is you're, you know, what it is you're working on. Right. Right. But also like, how do you do that in a way that does, that, that feels safe, you know, that you feel mm-hmm. protected and that, you know, you know, you're not, you're not being unsafe or being stalked or having people like, you know, chase you down the street or whatever. And I think there's a lot of fear around being seen. So this, I really tipped this on as a practice. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it sort of produced extraordinary, extraordinary results. So I still have the tiara. I still wear it every once in a while. And I've actually been really thinking about um, reinstating it because it's been such a, a powerful practice. And I, and I even did it when like, if it was, if it was Tuesday, I think actually we ended up doing it Thursdays eventually And so even if it was a Thursday and I was like going through, um, I was traveling, I would wear my tiara like on the plane. It was, it was a hoot. Like it, it was, it was kind of amazing because everybody wants to talk to you, right? Like homeless folks on the street, Mm -hmm. they want to engage you because you're doing something weird. And like, you know, um, people, when you walk into restaurants are like, is it your birthday? And everybody wants to talk to you. Like you're suddenly the center of attention in all of these ways. Sometimes they're, they're incredibly positive and sometimes they're, you know, neutral. And sometimes they're, they're kind of, they're kind of difficult. I had one, one man um, ask me, tell me that he thought I was a queen and then ask me for money. Um, and that was, I was like, Oh, uh, ooh, I'm not sure quite what to do with this. So it's, it, it, it was a journey. I highly recommend taking on some, some related journey. And, you know, if you want to take, you know, wear a tiara, I'd be happy to, you know, take pictures of folks who want to wear tiaras and, you know, talk to them about my experience. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brianna, it was one, wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for all your transparency and all your wisdom. Um, really loved having you. And I want to give you some time to great. tell our listeners. Yeah. I want to give you some a uh, few minutes to tell our listeners how they can reach you if they're interested in working with you, and I believe you have an offer for them as well. So take it away. It's true. So, so of course you can you know reach out to us. You know if you're really if you're excited about bookkeeping, um, we you know we have a bookkeeping service. The thing that's actually really up for me right now is I'm launching a podcast called Bliss Your Biz, and if you go to Bliss Your Biz like B L I S your while your biz biz.com slash gift um, we have the uh, you know 10 things that you can do to make your business more pleasurable and profitable and if you go over there 
um, and sign up for it, it will, um, you'll get information about the podcast. So if you, you know, are excited about listening to me talk and you got something out of this, I recommend you come over and, and, and hang out with us on the podcast because I'm, you know, some of it is me talking. Some of it is me doing, we do these panel discussions with other experts about sex, about money, about, you know, um, the business of pleasure, um, lots of really interesting conversations. And we're just starting to open up for doing um, like some, uh, what is it called? Um, like laser coaching for folks that, you know, come, we are doing these monthly laser coaching sessions. And so if you, if you want advice about this kind of stuff or you're interested in coming and checking it out, I would definitely go to blissyourbiz.com slash gifts. So that's B-L-I-S-S-Y-O-U-R-B-I-Z.com slash gift. And we'd love to have you come and hang out with us over on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. Anything else you want to say in closing? Uh, I think you're awesome, and I wish you were here, and I could give you a great big hug. It's been great to hang out with you. Aww. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you, hon. Okay, well, I wish yeah. you the best of luck with your podcast. And we'll see you around you. on the, quote, campus. <laughs> That's right. We'll see you around. Lots of love. Okay, Hans. Take care. All right. Good night. Bye-bye. Time on Leading Edge Love Radio, where I will be interviewing the esteemed high facilitator named Peter Rangel. Peter Rangel has been leading Human Awareness Institute workshops for, oh, gosh, 25 years or more, Um and he's going to be leading a polyamory workshop in the Bay Area in May. And so I wanted to get him on the, the show here and talk about his upcoming workshop and um, what he knows about polyamory. So please join us next week at the same time, 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio, blogtalkradio.com. All right. Have a good evening, everyone. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.